0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five
1: dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. No sooner had America's civil war ended than racist militias, including the Ku Klux Klan, sprang up. We speak to an author who wrestles with that dark legacy, finding one of its protagonists in his own family tree. And check behind the couch cushions for change. European citizenship could be yours. Some countries give so called golden passports to big money investors. That fills plenty of European coffers, but plenty of Europeans say it brings in shady characters. But first, a president whose whereabouts are unknown, parliamentary offices overrun by protesters. Multiple opposition candidates vying to take the title of prime minister. After a national election, confusion and chaos have overtaken the former Soviet state of Kyrgyzstan, tucked between Kazakhstan and China. Central Asia is a region ruled by strongmen, who typically get close to 100% of the vote. So, three years ago, when Surinbai Jain Bekov was elected Kyrgyzstan's president uneventfully, with 55% it was hailed as the region's first peaceful and democratic transfer of power. But even then, there were murmurs of electoral misconduct. This time, the murmurs are a roar. The worrying absence of uncontested leadership has turned a country where both China and Russia have interests into a tinderbox.
2: On Sunday, Kyrgyzstan went to the polls to elect a new parliament And it was this event that ended up propelling Kyrgyzstan into a bout of political chaos because all of the opposition parties and also many of the people of Kyrgyzstan simply didn't accept the results.
1: Joanna Lillis writes about Central Asia for The Economist and is based in Kazakhstan.
2: They started to come in on Monday when a preliminary count showed that pro-presidential parties would be dominating Parliament and the opposition would have a few seats but would be almost entirely shut out. People took to the streets immediately. Thousands of people went to the main square in the capital, Bishkek, started demonstrating against those results. And when the police failed to disperse them, there were pitched battles between riot police and protesters. There were thousands of them. The protesters stormed the building houses the president's office and parliament, and they were shouting that he should go.
1: And what is it that happened in in the election that led to such a reaction?
2: Well, there were two things that the protesters were absolutely furious about. The first was that they believed that the results were skewed in favour of parties broadly loyal to the president. The second question that was really exercising these enraged protesters was how that was achieved. And the allegation is that there was absolutely rampant vote buying. I really have to say it, it was an open secret. In fact, it wasn't a secret that parties were going around paying people money, to vote in their favor. I mean, we, we even know the going rate. It was 2000 some, which is about $25. Now, this is all alleged. Now it's under investigation. But, you know, the evidence was, was fairly credible that was circulating on social media. So when the results came in, that's why they took to the streets.
1: And so what's the situation on the ground now? Who, who's in control?
2: Well, events have moved in a very fluid manner, fast moving, because Kyrgyzstan remains very much embroiled in this political turmoil. And really what we've seen forming is a power vacuum. The whereabouts of the president are actually unknown. So Soren says he's in control of the situation through spokespeople, but meanwhile... Some political factions are at odds with other political factions, so all of those opposition forces, and they're very disparate, they include nationalists, liberal reformers, all kinds of different forces, they are failing to find common cause. I mean, we've seen mobs from some factions basically engaging in fisticuffs with other factions. You know, the threat of violence has been hanging in the air in Kyrgyzstan.
1: And so what next? How, how to unravel all of this?
2: The protesters have succeeded in having one of their main demands met. The day after they stormed the presidential offices and parliament, the Electoral Commission announced that it would annul the results of those elections and they promised that there would be a rerun of the election. But of course, what's not clear is how can an election be now held in the current circumstances, a power vacuum, sporadic violence, people out on the streets. So it's really unclear if, if that's enough to satisfy the protesters. And it's not only about the protesters at this point. It's very much about the, the political factions, the clans, the people who are now jostling for power. The prime minister, kubat Beg Baronov, resigned. And we have two rivals already claiming to be the prime minister. One of them is a rabble rousing nationalist former MP called Sadi Japarov who was actually sprung from jail during the unrest by his supporters. And he had been in jail for kidnapping a local official during a previous bout of political unrest. Mr. Joparov's supporters have been aggressively, sometimes violently, trying to prevent rival factions from meeting, besieging buildings in which they're meeting, throwing stones and scuffling with rivals, basically. What happens next is a big question. It's a very unpredictable, very chaotic and potentially dangerous situation.
1: And given all that chaos and the the potential for for danger here, do do you think this has an international
2: dimension to it? Outside powers are expressing deep concern over the situation in Kyrgyzstan. On the one hand, we have China, with which Kyrgyzstan shares a border. And China has expressed concern and is clearly alarmed at reports that protesters are targeting Chinese own business interests in the country, specifically gold mines that are operated by Chinese companies. And then on the other side, we have Russia, which is obviously Kyrgyzstan's former colonial power. Russia has a military base in Kyrgyzstan, and it really doesn't like to see popular uprisings in what it considers to be its own geopolitical backyard. And this is of particular concern at this point in time, because Russia has been looking on with great alarm at protests in Belarus, on the other side of the former Soviet Union, where protesters have for weeks now been coming out against the results of presidential elections. Indeed, this week, the Kremlin has started to make no secret of its concern about events in Kyrgyzstan, and has basically saying that it's descending into chaos and that Moscow has obligations under a security treaty to prevent the situation from breaking down.
1: Well, I mean, from from breaking down further, I mean, how, how bad could this get if this carries on?
2: Um, The confusion that Kyrgyzstan currently faces may in the end help President Jain Bekov to hang on to power, although it's very, very clear that at this point he is not going to get the pliant parliament that he was hoping to get out of this uh, election. He has three years left in office. Kyrgyzstan's presidents can only serve a single term. That's under a system introduced to prevent power grabs. But it's important to remember that the Kyrgyz. People have overthrown two presidents in the past, so Mr. Jane Beckoff's position is very shaky. And what is really clear is, the longer the power vacuum that we're currently seeing in Kyrgyzstan remains unresolved, the more likely it becomes that violence will be used to resolve it.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Joanna.
2: Thank you very much.
1: For more on-the-ground analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more
0: than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full
1: terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people.
1: At the end of America's Civil War in 1865, the violence didn't stop. Across the South, hundreds of thousands simply changed outfits from Confederate uniforms to hoods and robes, committing atrocities largely with impunity.
3: Well, the Ku Klux Klan was born in Tennessee in 1865, and several similar militias soon sprung up across the recently defeated South. And their aim was to restore white supremacy.
1: Andy Miller is The Economist's culture editor, and formerly our correspondent in the American
3: South. These groups set out to restrict black political rights overturned Republican state governments and in general thwart the federal reconstruction effort. Many Confederate veterans were involved and I think even to those familiar with this period, reading about the scale and intensity of this violence and also the fact that hardly anyone was ever punished for any of it, even for instances of mass murder and what we would regard as treason, is really astonishing and shocking.
1: It's a collective history that the nation is still coming to terms with. In a new book, one historian reckons with that legacy, starting with
4: his own family. Constant LeCorn is my grandmother's grandfather. And he was an active white supremacist in Louisiana in the late 1800s. Edward Ball is the author of
1: Life of a Klansman, a family history in white supremacy.
4: He was born before the Civil War into a declining landholding family in New Orleans. and He became a ship carpenter and he was a working class man. He went on to fight in the Civil War, and when he came back from that war, the white population in the Deep South at the time was almost uniformly full of rage and resentment against black people. But this man, along with perhaps 50,000 Other men carried out acts of violence and rampage because they were full of resentment. They had lost social status. They had lost money. They had turned their anger of what they regarded as their disfranchisement against the Black people around them. They would go out at night, usually in costume, wearing hoods, sometimes wearing robes, and maraud through Black villages and beat people and whip people. They engaged in targeted attacks, sometimes assassinations, of Black politicians. The most important episodes in which my ancestor participated were massacres. There was one called the Mechanics Institute Massacre, in summer 1866, in which 200 black people were killed in New Orleans who were petitioning for the right to vote. At one point, he was charged with treason, my ancestor. If he had been successfully prosecuted and convicted, he would have hung, but he was let off by a sympathetic white judge who understood and believed in the supremacist cause. The Ku Klux Klan is useful as a villain that we like to trot out and say, well, oh, those people are the racists. Those are the white supremacists. But the reality is that about one half of white Americans have an ancestor who once participated in one of the Ku Klux Klan movements in the past. So it's not at all a marginal phenomenon. It's it's quite central to the family memory of many people. As descendants of people who carried out acts of, of violence against others, I think that we are not responsible in the legal sense. We are not culpable for the crimes of our predecessors. But we are, I believe, accountable for them and to them. And our best efforts would be to come to terms with and to reckon with, to face the true facts of our familial inheritance and talk about them. There are many things about national life that people willfully forget, and especially Acts of violence and terror, and we have willfully tried to repress their memory. But I think that if we excavate their memory, we might be conducting an act of healing. One way to look at it is that white supremacy is like a cancer that is throughout the body of our country and our national history. And to look at it face-to-face is like applying chemotherapy. It's shocking, and it's painful, but it eventually can lead to the restoration of
3: some kind of health. It's, It's a really interesting way to write a biography. Mr. Ball has some family lore about his ancestor that, you know, passed down through the generations but he has really very little in the way of documentary records. And so he does a fair bit of conjecture about what his subject's life may have been like and events in which he may have been involved. This can seem like a little bit of a sort of bait and switch, but then the longer I read it, the more pointed the conjectures became, because I think really the point of this story is not that all of these things definitely happened to this particular individual, but they they all definitely happened to America. And so more than a portrait of Mr. Ball's ancestor, really, it's a portrait of the time in which he lived, and I think a very powerful and effective one.
1: And what do you think that that portrait of of the time has to tell us about, about today?
3: Well, the author is really adamant that this is a book that is, you know, as much about his time, about our time, as it is about his ancestors' time. He decries what he sees as a sort of moral condescension of the present towards the past. You know, the idea that, you know, had we been alive, then we would have behaved very differently. And he resists that idea. But he sees today's white Americans very much as the beneficiaries of a structurally racist society that, people like his ancestor had fought for and, in in his view, had helped to accomplish. Even more than that, he sees traces of this white supremacist attitude, not only in the kind of explicit forms of racism that are still visible in America, but also in biases that he thinks many white Americans still hold. And, you know, whether or not you agree with all of that analysis, it's certainly thought-provoking and worth considering.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Andy. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's pretty handy to have a passport from a European Union country. The little burgundy booklet gives permission to live and work in any of 27 peaceful, mostly prosperous countries. How to get one, though, if you're not from around the block? Some EU governments, such as Malta and Cyprus, run what are called golden passport schemes. Citizenship in return for investing a certain amount. For some European governments, it's easy money. For others, it looks like trouble.
5: For 2.2 million euros, you can buy an EU passport and become a citizen of Cyprus.
1: Duncan Robinson is our Brussels bureau chief.
5: Not everyone's very happy about that. Us, live on the president of the European Commission sort of puts it on the same level as judicial corruption or cracking down on the free press. Some people think it's really against the rules, but at the moment, a single country can decide to do it, and so they do.
1: But why is there this displeasure about them? Why is it up there with actual wrongdoing?
5: An EU passport is special insofar that it gives you the right to live not just in that country, but in 26 other countries. If someone is to buy a passport from Cyprus, which lets you buy one for about 2 million euros worth of investment, then they can turn up in Germany or France. And there's nothing that Germany or France can do about it because they're a European citizen. They've got the passport. Cyprus and Malta say that they're very, very careful and they turn some people down. But other countries think that basically some rather unsavory characters are getting access to EU passports and therefore uh, being able to turn up in the EU in countries where they'd rather not have them.
1: So if it tends to make lots of EU governments nervous, then why not just ban the practice altogether?
5: Because all governments would have to agree on it. So you'd have to get all 27 governments to sign off to change the rules. And obviously, Malta and Cyprus are not very keen on it. And also, other countries are being a little bit hypocritical on it too, because lots of countries have things for investment for residency. So you invest, say, £500,000 and buy somewhere in Portugal. And then if you stay there for a few weeks or months each year and you do that for five years, that can turn into a Portuguese passport. But other countries do it for other reasons. So Ireland's got a very generous scheme. So anyone with an Irish grandparent can claim a passport. So in the UK, that means there's six million lucky Brits who, if they so wish, can reclaim an EU passport, which is good news for them. Italy is even more generous. Anyone with a single male relative dating back to the formation of Italy in 1861 can claim a passport. And other countries do it for reasons of atonement. For instance, anyone who was sort of kicked out of Austria and Germany between 1933 and 1945, which is predominantly Jewish victims of the Holocaust, still is able to qualify for a passport. So that's a sort of good moral reason for doing it. And then there's some who take a slightly more cynical approach. So you've got Hungary, for example. Hungary lost a big chunk of its territory after the First World War. and So there's lots of people who still speak a bit of Hungarian scattered across Serbia and Ukraine and other countries like that. And Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, said, I want to enfranchise these people and started dishing out passports to anyone who effectively could speak Hungarian. And the good thing from Viktor Orban's point of view is that those people are then very loyal voters. About 95 percent of them end up voting for Orban's party if they do vote.
1: So clearly many different motivations in many different places. And as you say, an outright ban wouldn't work. But what do you think might happen to tackle the more mercenary end of this that's going on, for instance, in Malta and Cyprus?
5: So the European Commission is going for what you can call the Al Capone approach. He was a nasty gangster, but he wasn't sent to jail for being a gangster. He was sent to jail for tax evasion. So they're going to try and pursue Malta and Cyprus to make sure that they're abiding by all money laundering situations. But that doesn't really solve it because I could just save up my perfectly legitimate income and then buy a passport. There's no money being laundered. Fundamentally, if they want to stop countries from selling passports, then they need to come up with common rules for who gets an EU passport but as you can see countries have very very different often very personal reasons for the way they dish out passports and so people will be very reluctant to sign up to common rules because it'll allow other people to have a say on who is and isn't a citizen of their country.
1: Duncan thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me.